Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Lawless Files. We're a podcast that looks at true crime and justice, specifically injustice. We began with the case of Michelle Lawless and diving into the injustice of that case. Several weeks ago, we began looking at some other cases in the region, particularly in the mineral area. Today, I'm excited to bring you an interview with a person I consider to be an interesting guest. This guest has experience with injustice and policing in Southeast Missouri. Her sister was convicted, my guest believes wrongfully so, for the murder of a man in Puxico, Missouri. This man was her sister's husband. My guest is from Popper Bluff, so she understands the culture of the boot heel. In fact, she has said she learned she was, quote, white trash, unquote, in the second grade. She comes from a violent background with killers dotted up and down her family tree. But this guest has made a life for herself. She became a law enforcement officer, having served in several roles from deputy in Ripley County to a position in Ferguson, and eventually she found herself the police chief in a small town near St. Louis. In 2001, she was named Law Enforcement Officer of the Year in Lincoln County. She's worked in tandem with the FBI. She's earned multiple degrees while in college, adding psychology and writing to her skill sets. Last year, she published a book called If You Can't Stop Crying, You Can't Come Here No More. Our guest name is Betty Frizzell. Frizzell's experience as a law enforcement officer is important to her, but in 2013, she found herself questioning the murder case built against her mentally ill sister, Vicki Isaac. Vicki's husband, Chris Isaac, was shot while sleeping on the couch in their home in 2013, but Vicki's son, Betty's nephew, was also in the home, and he also had a mental illness, specifically schizophrenia. Vicki was convicted in 2016, and her sister Betty believes her sister lied to protect her son from taking the rap on the murder. Betty's book is not without controversy. Chris Isaac's family on Facebook has called it lies, but Betty stands by her writing. The case will be the subject of an upcoming Netflix episode of the show I Am A Killer, where Stoddard County Prosecutor Russell Oliver was interviewed. I was interested in Betty's story, not just about her sister and brother-in-law's case, but also her perspective of a law enforcement officer about the roadblocks to justice, particularly in rural areas like Southeast Missouri. Lord knows we've seen enough strange cases at the lawless files that we cannot possibly handle them all. Specifically, Betty heard of Barb Hall's case and how police are handling her son, Timmy Deese. And so Betty reached out and I'm glad she did. I think you'll find her perspective interesting. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. The way that policing is handled down there, I mean, look at the, when you did the case with Barb and her son, I was just like, oh my gosh. Well, I don't know if you're familiar with what happened in my sister's case, but she had had a stroke a year before the murder. And I had an open case with the Missouri Division of Aging and um, and was very familiar with law enforcement down there. I told them, I was teaching in Ferguson at the time, I was teaching policing, and she uh, had had a stroke. And then she, my, my nephew called five days before the murder and said he was going to kill her, kill him, and then kill herself. But... <laughs> And, and uh, he, had, he had had homicidal ideation for years we didn't know about. But the, they allowed a bunch of people to walk in her crime scene, destroyed her crime scene. So, Betty, thank you so much for joining us here on The Lawless Files. And uh, I'm glad you found me. 
Um, uh, you're an interesting person to talk to because you have uh, familiarity with Southeast Missouri. You have familiarity with rural law enforcement. Um, you have familiarity with being on the the being on the side of a, a of a person that's committed a crime, I should say, you know, with with doubts about guilt and and things like that. And uh, you also have um, a a history um, in law enforcement with the background that that we just kind of went over there. So you you have a lot of different ways of looking at this uh, at issues, uh, some of the same issues that we're uh, talking about in the Lawless file. So um, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And by the way, what I've read that you've written is is wonderful. You're a talented writer. Thank you. Um, Thank you very much. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, my my listeners are, are used to, you know, some of these true crime stories. Now, obviously, we had the, the long investigation with the Michelle Lawless case. And then we've had a uh, a handful of other cases uh, kind of contained more in, um, you know, the mineral area um, south of St. Louis, north of here. But I wanted to um, talk first just about the the case that uh, is near and dear to your heart, and that involves your sister who was convicted of murder. When was that? 2016? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, she was convicted. She was arrested in 2013. Yeah. She was convicted for for killing her husband. Her name is Vicki Isaac. Her husband's name was Chris Isaac. Um, can you talk a little bit about the circumstances of that murder? Um, I'm not sure where you want to start with that, uh, how far back you want to go, but uh, can you just kind of introduce our listeners to uh, this case? Sure. Um, in 2013, my sister was arrested for uh, murdering her husband. And, and this is the police version of it. The official version is that she got up, she loaded uh, our mom's old 22 and shot him uh, 10 times in the head while he slept on the couch. She then turned the gun on herself and tried to kill herself, but her son stopped her. Her adult son came into the room and stopped her. And because um, she called 911 and confessed. Now, that's the official version of what they said happened. But as I was, I'm a trained investigator. I've been an investigator my whole adult life. I There was so many cracks in this. I was like, and I think it was a case that where um, there was a lot of tunnel vision where they had a confession. They wrapped it up. They're done. And I, um, I, I didn't, even though I had the emotional attachment to it, the cop in me kicked in and said, there's something not right here. There's something seriously not right with this whole, this whole thing because um, her adult son, it just there was just one thing after another. Like five days before the murder, her adult son had called nine one one. Now he's a, an adult who suffers from mental health conditions, um, preferably predominantly um, schizophrenia, and he called nine one one and said, "I'm going to kill her, kill him, and then kill myself." He was taken to a, a mental institution for 96 hour hold. That's three days. He gets out. Two days later, my my brother-in-law's dead. But the way police handled it was another situation that I had a problem with. I've been teaching uh, criminal uh, criminal uh, techniques for many years after I left um, full-time law enforcement. I'm actually an investigator now for uh, in a, doing a different type of crime investigation. But um, if you, when you have a crime scene, and you don't block it off and keep people out of it. 
It's called the low card principle. You can't go in without de depositing something. You can't come out without depositing something. So as soon as they had that, the family of the victim was allowed to go into this trailer, this tiny cracker box, you know, you see them uh, type trailers, the salting cracker looking trailers and start taking clothes for a funeral, which is three days later. We, there was other items taken besides clothes. The law enforcement allowed her to go them to go in there. That contaminated the crime scene right there. I wouldn't have released that uh, crime scene for days, but they allowed them to go in there because they had it all wrapped up. They thought that they had this murderer. This was done. Still, I've worked suicides that I knew was a real suicide, and we've kept the crime scene, the integrity of the crime scene for days. I don't understand what, what why they allowed these people to go in there, going in and out. Things were things disappeared from my sister's house, and we had to go to probate, but. Those were two of the biggest factors. And then I went and um, started doing, well, my sister was convicted in 2007, 16, and my nephew disappeared. And I found that very odd. He uh, just disappeared. I, I put a missing persons report out on him. Took three months for um, Papa Bluff police to get to it. And then the detective calls me and says, you know that he has a, a uh, passport. And I said, there's no way he has a passport. He said, yeah, he does. And I said, well, call Homeland Security, because I had worked with the FBI for years on, um, I was assigned to them with my, my uh, as a detective, that my sheriff's department had loaned me out to the, the FBI. And I was like, call Homeland Security. Homeland Security uh, got a hold of him and said, yeah, he boarded a plane the day she got convicted of life plus 25 years to Europe. Oh, wow. So. And has I, he been, do you know where he is now? It's been several years. Well, yeah, and this has been the situation what's going on. He went to Rome and he uh, got gangrene in his feet and lost both of his feet. And um, so I got told by the consulate, you know, put him on a plane. So, cause he was overstayed his visa. So I said, sure. And they were like, you know, you have to pay for it. And I said, the, the quickest ticket I can get is from Rome, Frankfurt, Germany, to, see, to Portland, to my home in Seattle. And he gets on the plane, gets off in Frankfurt, Germany and walks away and gets in the homeless community in Germany. I had to go over, oh, <laughs> not wow. to give away too much of my book, but yeah. I had to go away and I had to go over with no one, two phrases in German and police work is all I ever knew. And they were like, we haven't seen him in six months, Miss Taylor and Mr. Frizzell. And uh, you know, you, you can sure go looking for him. I'm like, okay. So I went and looked for him. It took me three days. The German police go, hey, I want to, uh, we want to give you a job. I said, nope, that's just how we do police work in America. <laughs> and uh, I found it with no a picture and knowing two phrases in German. Oh, wow. Uh, we can't get him back over here. He's fighting to come back over. He won't come over. So they're a sanctuary country. So I've been coordinating and then COVID happened. Yeah. So there was some travel and, um, but I've been coordinating with Frank, the German police to get him back over here. And uh, I've even had to look into a German police, uh, German uh, court to get him back over here. Okay, so just to review real quick, um, your your sister um, gave some sort of confession, mm -hmm. um, and uh, what was the other evidence against her? Anything else? Just her confession. And that she had uh, gunshot residue on her. But gunshot residue has its issues. When you shoot a gun, it's like shooting talcum powder everywhere. Mm -hmm. If she had walked in the room, which this is what I theorize may have happened. My nephew was shooting him. 
she walked in the room and started wrestling the gun because I believe my sister would have been his other victim if she wouldn't have woke up. Because you guys think about it, even a 22 in that type quarters, I've been in many mobile homes where there's been shot gunshots, being as long as I've been in the job I've been in. And it's like a cannon going off. And she got, he said he slept through 10 shots. My nephew did. And, but, but I think my sister got up, heard the shots, and uh, was trying to get the gun out of his hand and got the gunshot residue on him on her because he made a big deal when we went first went down there about these gloves he had he said that they had given him gloves to clean up the crime scene and that was another thing they didn't clean up the crime scene they made this mentally ill person clean up this crime scene there was still brain matter on the couch and everything it was very grotesque and uh, so um yeah so so um Chris Isaac was asleep on the couch when this murder occurred. Exactly. Yeah. And um, they hadn't, you know, even my nephew has said they hadn't been fighting or anything. I mean, they had a tumultuous relationship. It had been not off and on for 13 years. And uh, there's a lot of things in the book. They were both had been in like a wrestling, you know, that like WWE type wrestling. And there was a lot of pain meds going on, which opioids are a big problem. In these small towns i mean they yeah um, and uh that was another issue that they were having but my nephew wasn't looked at close enough and, I, and you know i hate to say i pick one over the other but i know my sister's mentality and it, they didn't look at the victimology of their uh, of the whole totality of everything and that was happening in there and they did the one thing that's very detrimental to every investigator and that's have tunnel vision we no. you can't just take an obvious road you got to look everywhere so have, has your sister talked about any of this to you or? No. Okay. <laughs> she, uh, she knows that I know, and she's read my book and she actually, she's told, um, you know, we, we just did a Netflix special and um, she has told them that uh, I, I believe that I, my sister has written 100% the truth in this book. That's the closest we've gotten to, because you got to look at my sister. My sister was a victim severe domestic violence victim my mother was her first vic- uh, uh, um, her, her first victimizer then she'd go to school and she had a learning disability in the early the late 70s early 80s they didn't understand people with uh, ob- um, ob- uh, her her type of learning obstacles that she had and then she would she only knew abuse and then she got into romantic relationships as a teenager started getting abused and then they put, she got into the criminal justice system and then it was one arrest after another for and not for violent crimes for more the DUIs and and things like that and so she she's only known violence her whole life and then the son had been arrested her son had been arrested a month prior for strangling her um the husband had been arrested for uh, not arrested but there was a a, a uh, a barricaded situation where he was in the house and she uh, had to call the police on him because she called me crying. What had happened, what, there was this dysfunction in that whole home. And then when she had the stroke, she could handle the dysfunction until she had the stroke. She had a stroke a year to the day of the murder. Oh my. And, um, and then after that, it just was perfect storm. Yeah. You had him and my nephew with his mental illness, my sister and her husband with the opioid use. It was just in her mental health issues and his mental health issues one right after the other. And I was trying to get them help. I had an open case with Missouri Department of Aging for abuse on her. 
and we were trying to get custody of her. My ex-husband and I were. It's just that the, it's not as easy as people see on, on with Britney Spears or anything. Conservatorship, especially in Missouri, you have to serve the person and they have to be in court. And it's a very arduous process. It's not that easy. Because you're taking away someone's civil rights. You're taking away their right to vote, the right to have a firearm. It's, it's not easy at all. And um, I've been through tr two of those trying to get my nephew and her. And my nephew, unfortunately, we were the we were in the process of getting him served and he would he would disappear. I mean, that what a tough situation. Uh, where were you at this time? Were you you were living up in uh, St. Louis? Is that right? Yes, I was teaching in Ferguson. I was teaching uh, um, at Northwest Academy of Law. Uh, during the riots, <laughs> this oh was all gosh. going on during the unrest, and um, I was dealing with my children. You know, I taught to a 100% African American school, and I was teaching them about policing and trying to get into culture and policing, like getting more minorities and females into policing. And um, I was dealing with them and, and their issues because a lot of them would tell me about their parents, and we tried to help get them resources. And then I was dealing. That was the Ferguson part, the urban part. And then at night I was doing my sister's case with this rural county that wouldn't listen, wouldn't re-examine anything. It got to the point where um, they had done so many things to my sister. Like my sister had um, been taken out of the, the jail and um, uh, taken to the ATM to get her last social security check. And they took the, 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 this is a person who had a no bond warrant. So she wasn't allowed to get even a bond to get out. So they took her to the ATM to get her last social security check so that she could put on her books so they could make money off of it. I found that, first of all, very unethical. Second of all, um, I wouldn't put my officers in that kind of line of fire because she, you know, his family was very angry. And, you know, here she is. She's on a no bond warrant. Why are you taking her out of the jail to get money so you can make money off of her? And come to find out later on that jailer, the, the, jail administrator was arrested for sexual assault. So there was a lot of problems that were going on down there. Oh, my and, goodness. Yeah, we learned with the, this recent, uh, what was that, na the national case where the, uh, the the jailer ran off with the, I mean, uh, I, we kind of learned, from, yeah, we kind of learned from that case, you shouldn't be doing these things solo, right? No, no. And they took her out with one deputy. They yeah. said that they had a video and then I had contacted the media because I was very upset about this. And all they wanted to do was bring it back on the family and say that we were just trying to get money. No, I was trying to find out why my sister was taken out of a, of a jail when she has a no bond warrant as a professional. I just wanted to ask you profession to professional. And um, you can't answer that. So that's the problem. There's got to be these sheriffs are elected in these small counties. And it's like they're the big fish in these small, tiny ponds. And if you don't have the right last name or then you have a problem with ethics because it, they make you they view you as lesser than and i i hate that with, and i would see that time and time again that some people with a, a certain last name and you know i was telling my kids when i teach in ferguson i was said i understand your discrimination because it's the same but different because i grew up with a single mom she was you know boisterous and loud in this small tiny town and that's why i couldn't even work in that town <laughs> i had to go over to other towns because and there's some policing agencies that put on their applications. If you have a brother-in-law, stepbrother, anybody that's been in trouble with it, that we've arrested, we won't hire you. That's, that's discrimination. You can't really tell, you know, not like me. I'm the youngest of eight. And I 
I am very, I'm nothing like the rest of my family. And I mean, right. Yeah. You, you wrote about one of the, the articles I read or uh, I can't remember, but, but your, your, your family has a lot of history of, of violence and um, you know, going back generations. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure in your hometown that, that kind of sticks with you, um, yeah. you know? Uh, so um, I was going to ask you about this a little bit later, but since you kind of brought it up, um, you know, we do have cases that we're looking here at, uh, on, on the podcast um, where we've got uh, mothers of people who are missing um, and then weird circumstances um, with autopsies and investigations and follow through and things like that. Um, from your perspective, is there anything that you could recommend or, you know, what advice would you give uh, to to some of these families that are dealing with these weird investigations? Um, first of all, do a sunshine request. Missouri has tried to limit, especially in Missouri, they've really tried to limit the sunshine request. They've tried to get as much, a little, especially, and they always say, well, it's an active investigation. We can't give you a lot. But what you can get, and if you guys, and this is, the, it comes all down to money, right? Because if you, if you can get an attorney to subpoena this stuff, it, you've got a better chance. But a lot of times people who live in these rural communities don't have the, the means to do that. If you can get another agency to step in and help, like if it's a and ask for a federal, get the federal law enforcement involved, but then it's, there's so many factors to that. But I, for me, I would just keep being a voice. I, um, when I was writing my book, I met Angela Davis <laughs> and she said, I was going to throw my manuscript away. And she said, I told her my story because at that time, the prosecutor was going to arrest me because he wanted to silence me, he wanted to keep me quiet. He has since lost the election. Uh, he's not going to be prosecutor in the county anymore, but um, is this, he tried I'm sorry, me. what county, this is Stoddard County? Stoddard, Stoddard County. He tried okay. to arrest me and I was a teacher just like Angela was when she got arrested and, and uh, President Reagan took away her certification. And she told me, she said one thing, she said, you keep writing and you keep fighting because you're not, they don't have a voice. They have, you've got to have somebody that keeps the wheel turning and has that voice out there. And I think there are agencies that can help you. You just got to keep digging and find them because and as louder your voice is, the better it is. And that's why I was really impressed with your podcast to help these people who don't have a voice to talk about this thing because we, we put so much emphasis on urban policing. But the problem, and it's statistically, if you look into it, um, the Vera Institute has done a lot of research on rural um, policing and that they have um, showed that the biggest, especially in Missouri, and now I found in Oregon, that the biggest number of new female inmates is from these rural counties because it's a money maker. It all comes back to money. And we want to be tough on crime. We want to, we don't want to live in an unsafe community. However, we want ethical people that want to take care of the situation. And and I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we don't have um, people who have had different experiences like myself, when you limit them to be in law enforcement as well. Yeah. Because I had a different perspective coming in, being a female, first of all. I was only one of three female chiefs of police in the whole state of Missouri. And, and yeah, at remind that time, us what, what town was that again? Winfield. Winfield. It was a very tiny town, too. Yeah, it's right outside of St. Louis. And um, I was, a, you know, and then I had this, family with this very violent past that I, I knew criminal behavior a little bit in depth mm -hmm. of knowing that. But if I had 
listened and let people tell me what I was going to be, I would have never done anything. Right. But getting back to your question, I, I know it's a roundabout way, but just keep looking for resources. I mean, they're in these, like in the West Memphis three case, look at that case. They won't let the judges not letting them retest the DNA. I uh, am familiar with the lady that wrote the book about them. And she is, she, you know, we knew that was in judge, but now they're still not letting them retest the DNA. Why not? You know, just like in Patty Pruitt's case in Missouri, why not let them t- test her DNA? Yeah. DNA on her phone. Yeah. They're, they're afraid. Yeah. I, I don't understand it either. And I've done, um, you know, in the last handful of years, a lot of research on wrongful convictions and so forth. And boy, they, they the states just fight it every, you know, it's like, they're not really interested in the truth. They're just interested in protecting this conviction. It's, yeah. um, and I, hard. you know, I, I teach my kids when I, and when I do teach, I tell them I, I, it's to zealously pursue justice is the prosecutor's job. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and why would it, and then if we're really looking for justice, well, let's put the right person there, but the States want to keep it so hush hush because they sit, uh, open themselves up to liability. Well, that's true. That's true. I'm going to ask you, I, I mean, something you just said about uh, the, the prosecutor. Are we talking about Russell Oliver? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, he was he was wanting to arrest, me. arrest you. Yes. I mean, did that actually happen or was that just something that no. was said? It was said. He actually went to the media after... Um, uh, after my sister's conviction, my sister went ballistic. She she really did get out of hand. And I was walking out of the courtroom. The family of the victim come over and started screaming at me because I testified for my sister and tried to show the judge sympathy. They already knew that what they were going to get my sister. That's just fact. And um, so uh, I, you know, I told them, you know, because they had, had uh, tried to assault me before the trial, before I testified, the family did. And I'd actually went to the, the bailiff and said, can I stand with you? Because... Anyway, and then I turned to, and Russ was walking. I turned to him. I said, "We're going to appeal this." And he said, "And he said, well, you can get. You're going to." Uh, he didn't say anything to me then. He goes to chan- the local news and says, "I'm going to." Uh, uh, Betty Taylor ran out of the room, uh, ran out of the courtroom, and we're going to have her uh, arrest. The charges are possible for what? For speaking my mind? I'm sorry. And and if anybody would, they would allow a, a camera in there, which I think they all should be recorded. You would have saw that all I had told you was we're going to appeal this. And uh, so I had to live for two years worrying if I was going to get arrested, worrying if I was. And so I had an attorney. I went and got an attorney in Papa Bluff that day. And I had to wor- worry about that because here I fought for justice my whole life. I worked very hard to go to the police academy, worked very hard to get my master's in criminal justice and my doctorate in psychology. I worked so hard. And then you're going to this small town prosecutor is going to come and take my my degree and all that and, uh, and make it null and void just because I don't have the right to, t- to tell him we're going to appeal this. I, I would have never threatened anybody. I've, I've been in very violent courtroom situations my whole life. I knew to have my composure, but that whole courtroom, it was just ridiculous afterwards. So I had to live with that for two years, worrying if I was going to get arrested.
I have, a, I have a million questions. I'm trying to figure out which ones to to, to ask here. But uh, just going back to the case a little bit, you talked about how um, it wasn't thoroughly investigated and, you know, people allowed to go in and out. Um, is, is that something that you think happens in rural areas more often or like? Yes. And let me tell you why, because they don't have a, a dedicated crime scene unit. They don't have a dedicated person who does the the pictures they they do it themselves when you're a small town law enforcement you wear every hat yeah you wear all and so but that hat doesn't fit on everybody yeah (laughs) so you have all these uh these factors coming in that you might have someone that doesn't even know how to do it when i worked my first homicide i was by myself i'd just been out of the academy two weeks and i was so nervous but i knew not to let anybody in that was one thing they beat in our heads it was you know take it off but um, that's that you know that you don't have like in St. Louis County they have a whole crime scene unit that comes out with them. They have people that tape off. That's their job. They have people that go in. But you don't have that because you don't have the budget for it in small law enforcement. Yeah. How how long does uh, a typical like how long should a typical suicide investigation last? Because we've had a couple that maybe look like suicides, but it looks like maybe it was not. Um, I covered a couple cases like that. And it's in both cases, it seems like the uh, the investigation might have been rushed, but I'm not in law enforcement. I don't know how that process should work. But but what, what are your thoughts on that? I, I would hold that crime scene at least a day. I've seen them open it up like they did on my sister's case. They opened it up within hours. They opened, And that wasn't a suicide. That was an actual homicide. Yeah. I would hold it at least two days if you can, you know, for some reasons you can't because people don't have any place to go, but there's always a fund where they can stay in a hotel or something else because you're going to do yourself a service because you're going to get as much, you're going to have enough time in that crime scene to process it thoroughly. And that's the problem. They don't want to process it. Everybody wants to be on in the newspaper. Everybody wants to be on TV about it. They don't want to process it because you seem to forget that's what we're doing. We're pursuing justice. You know, we're enforcing the law. We're trying to find it, even if it goes one way or the other, you know, and that's what we need to do. Look at, have we not learned anything from John Bonet Ramsey? That was a big uh, uh, city too, but they weren't used to processing that type of crime. And they allowed all those people to walk in there and contaminate that crime scene. They should all have been thrown out. And that was one of the, the, the reasons that that case has been drug on so long because we've got so many advances in DNA right now. That we can solve crimes from 50 years ago, but we can't solve John Benet Rames, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You look at some of these, especially some of these cold cases, and you're just like, oh, my goodness. Like, and just even a novice like me, just like glaring holes in some of these things. And right, it's just, it's sad, you know? And, tunnel vision is what, that's and, it. It's a big detriment. It's tunnel vision to, to bond. I, I think in, in Missouri, and, and I guess this is, applies to other states too is that um the sheriff position is elected and yes. they can they can hold you, you're elected on for political reasons not necessarily your uh skills and your training and um you can have very unqualified people leading a department i i mean that that's my theory i don't know if you agree with that or not i do because it used to be in missouri the laws changed now that you didn't even have to have a law enforcement background you have to go through some type of academy, but then they would, after you got elected, they would put you through the sheriff's academy. And um, it used to be that you didn't even, that in these small counties, you could just be deputized. That had changed right before I got into law enforcement in the 90s. 
So you, uh, um, you didn't have to go to the academy. You didn't have to know constitutional law. You didn't have to know anything. Uh, you know, it was just you were you're given a gun and a badge and put on the street. And that's basically what happened to a lot of people who worked. I started in a rural county. I started in Ripley County, and that was basically it. I was given a gun and a badge and 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 uh, told to go patrol. I had a field training officer for I think two or three days. They gave me a county map and said, "That's it. You're on. You're on your own." But I went through the academy, and at that time, Missouri had changed it where they had started um, making you take the. Uh, the, an exam at the end of it. We were the first class that had to take the exam and that was 97. So um, it used to be that you could, anybody could be in that. You just have to take the, the sheriff's afterwards. There's been sheriffs in uh, the state of Missouri that have had DUIs, but they could drive, get on a hardship license and drive during the day. <laughs> they couldn't drive at night. It's, it's they could crazy. put other people in jail. Well, oh yeah. Yeah, it's crazy the number of, of cops that are cops with um, crimes like that. We're talking with Betty Frizzell. She has uh, quite a bit of experience dealing with rural uh, police in Missouri. She's a police, former police officer investigator herself. Um, uh, you said you also had a degree in psychology. Is that right? Oh, yeah. That's one of my degrees. Yeah. I have a degree in writing. <laughs> and she's the author of a book, If You Can't Quit Crying, You Can't Come Here No More, A Family's Legacy of Poverty, Crime, and Mental Illness in Rural America. And again, this is a story about her sister who was convicted of the murder of uh, her husband. What we're talking about is an investigation into that case that didn't dot all the I's and cross all the T's. And so now there are doubts left. Anyone who's been listening to The Lawless Files knows that we've been covering a lot of cases uh, like that. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the um, the mental health aspect of policing. You know, there's a there's a larger conversation in our country about how police should respond mm -hmm. and uh i i know there's data that, that mental illness mental health is is just an increasing problem across america and so there's a larger conversation about how to handle calls how to handle certain crimes you know obviously you come from a, a background where you've seen personally in your own family mental health you've seen it from a police officer's standpoint you've got the degree what are your thoughts on how we can make things better um, in in policing and mental health in this country? Well, you know, a lot of the, I, the, the bigger cities have started this. They're, um, where I live at in Washington State, they actually have a social worker that rides along with the police officer. And because policing, we're coming at a, at a different standpoint. When we come there, we're going to first thing is control the scene, make sure everybody's safe. And controlling the scene, sometimes you've got someone who's in mental health crisis. And I do a lot of speaking for Missouri NAMI, uh, Missouri uh, Mental Health uh, National Alliance of Mental Illness. And I, and I tell my sister's story because I, I really want police officers to hear. I, I see both sides. I've been on that scene and it was a hot call and you've got someone out there yelling and and um, we want to control the scene. So the first thing is 
handcuff and put him in the car. And that, that can traumatize someone who's already been traumatized and uh, who's going through a mental health crisis. And you're not, we're not trained on mental health crisis. There are CIT teams now in Missouri that I'm very proud of that they've, they've been doing a lot of work with NAMI, but, um, I think with like the, if we could get a social worker that could do that was trained in that or someone with a psychology degree that was trained in it, because a lot of issues that we have are out of the scope of just enforcing the law. Yep. There, are, there are social work issues and there are, um, you know, they're fighting because the, the lights are getting turned off. Well, there's resources. We have to make those resources available. And it's so hard in small rural counties because there's not that many resources. When my sister you know, I, I was trying to get custody of my sister before this murder. And I was trying to tell them, my other sisters who live in the rural South as well. Uh, one is in Georgia, one is in Louisiana. And I just kept saying, you know, let's get custody of her. Let's let's go together because it's a very expensive process. Let's do this and let's all get her out of that situation. And they said, it's a family business. Uh, don't, why are you in the middle of it? And it should start with the families and then de- and learn teaching rural law enforcement that just because this family has a history of getting in trouble with the law, they're not, maybe it's all not criminal. <laughs> maybe it has something to do with a mental health issue and getting mental health issue, uh, getting mental health facilities involved. But that's a problem in rural, rural counties because like with my sister, the nearest um, mental health facility was 45 miles away. That's a million miles to somebody who doesn't have gas money or the nearest mental um, domestic violence shelter was like 50 miles away. I mean, there, that's, that should, that's like being driving to another, going to another country for some people. Yeah. It's, it's the access to these things is minimal, but I think there should be a mandatory, some type of mental health training. They're not where they're certified licensed social workers or anything like, because police academy is, is usually a six month process, right? Or to a year. And a lot of those people that go into police academy don't, ha- didn't, don't have a degree. I didn't, when I went through police academy at the time, I got my degrees later on because I didn't have the money. <laughs> but they, um, but we need, you need to have some type of, and when they brought the, we had a social worker, a lady that had been a social worker come in and talk at our police academy. And that was, like one of the worst conversations, everybody was quiet. They didn't want to talk about that. They just want to talk about tactical and, you know, because everybody wants to go home at night. That's the police officer standpoint. But again, you're dealing with someone who's in a mental health crisis that you don't really know what you're doing. It's like putting, telling me to do heart surgery and my degrees in criminal justice. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and it's like you said, the, the role of the officers to enforce the law and, you can go into a, a scene where no crime has necessarily been, you know, committed, but you're still there in the middle of it. I don't know. It's it's a tough spot to be in for an officer and just showing up with the badge and the uniform and, and all of that can just seems like it can add another layer of uh, stress and everything to it. Um, you know, I think I think CIT training is gaining popularity i know here in cape Girardeau they do that i'm not sure about some of these other um these other jurisdictions in the area but there are some there are some people i know through this podcast that have had situations that i feel like they should have just they should have been handled by a social worker but when all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail kind of thing you know and and they make charges that shouldn't maybe necessarily be charges and now you're breaking up families and you know 
couldn't yeah, get a lot of work. Pretty, yeah. You know, it's just, it's a bad situation. So, well, I can tell you, like, I was raised around African American people. My mom's best friend was one in, in Poplar Bluff. And I knew that there was a common practice of putting a hot comb on a stove before we had hot, roll, hot, hot flat irons to straighten hair. And that was very common practice. I went on a scene one time and the guy was like, hey, uh, we're going to take this child into custody. And I went and I seen that it was just a tiny burn from this flat iron from the stove. She was, the mother was trying to straighten this four-year-old's hair. And the, but the guy was mad. The officer was angry because this the mother was being mouthy and, and not being respectful. And then, then human nature kicks in, right? We have that. That's a, a detriment to law enforcement as well as human nature. And I had to explain to him, we're not taking this kid in a culturally accepted practice for a tiny burn that is, it's not even with a pin, size of a pin. Because if we would take that kid into custody, the kid's going to go to foster care. Mom's going to go to jail for child endangerment. That's what he wanted to do. And that family would, that ripple effect would be affected for years. Yes. Yes. So for a culturally accepted practice in that community that you didn't, you're not even familiar with who you're policing. Yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to come back to, you mentioned it earlier. Um, uh, I, I just did an, kind of an episode on this, um, to some degree, but, uh, police accountability, um, the ability, um, to, to hop from one jurisdiction to the another, if you, if you're not fired, you know, forced to resign, you keep your certification and you can just go and um is there anything that can be done about that i mean what's um missouri post should be yanking those certifications they're not they're they're not given the 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 legal ability to do that because um it's called muni shuffling is what it's called it's very uh st louis university did a great study back in the early 2000s on that and that'd be something for you to really to look into it's uh it's where the muni shufflers they leave one they're they can either act resign or they can be asked to leave and then they go to another jurisdiction, do the same thing, bring that same mentality with them. And then they get in trouble there and they just keep hopping from one to the next. And um, what it is, is it's not correct to behavior. What needs to be done is give post Missouri police officer standard training, more authority to yank those certifications. But see, this is the issue. The cities don't want to get involved because if uh, they do, it can like, open them up to a liability issue. There needs to be a more streamlined law that if you do X, Y, and Z, and you're actually, we have enough beyond a reasonable, you know, have a, like a tribunal or something that we have it, then you can yank that certification. That happens so much. We would see so many people. I was in a, a small town outside the city of St. Louis. And St. Louis, you know, people would go through, they'd get the academy. And then somehow you're leaving a very high paying job compared to what we were paying out in the county, the, the rural counties around St. Louis. And you had good benefits, good retirement to come work for this mm -hmm. small, you know, why? 
and then you you all of the share and they just want to pass them along because it opens them up for liability issues in the rural communities where you find is these people are getting elected and they don't want they can always blame it on the bad officers if, if something goes down. oh yeah that guy don't work anymore but you know we're going to take care of it we're we're going to straighten it up because, oh yeah yeah, yeah i've through my reporting not for this podcast but with the with the newspaper there were some ugly stories about you know going to a new um department and stalking women while it comes to find out was forced to resign after doing similar things and the you know it's just i don't know that's that seems to be a problem too um right have has there been anything proposed uh from a a law standpoint i mean i imagine politically that's hard because you have on the right side you know back to blue and then on the left side you have police unions neither of which are probably going to be supporting something like that yeah. and that's been the problem with it dying in in committees when the, that this is trying to be addressed before and it just dies it just doesn't go anywhere like someone will get you know have a great brainchild with it and then it'll just go away in missouri's constitution up until a a uh, few decades ago, you couldn't unionize in Missouri except for St. Louis because St. Louis City was is a different. It's a county on itself. People right. think St. Louis City, St. Louis City. You know, you you know, you've worked up there. You know, it's a county. And uh, but the rural communities didn't. And a lot of these, a lot of small police officers that would get hurt on duty or something, they couldn't. They they didn't have like the the badge stoppers that helped them and and stuff. So, and there's such a influx of not being able to get. Uh, law enforcement to work anymore because nobody wants to go into that. I, I know out here in Seattle, we've had the the blue flight where they've just left. That's a tough, it's a tough thing. And the pay's not good and it's stressful and all of those things. And then, you know, you got both sides of politics, just breathing down your neck. It's, I mean, I have, then, I have as much as I talk about problems we have in policing, I am empathetic to like, problems why somebody wouldn't want to go into law enforcement you know it's it's complicated problems aren't they yes it's a it's it's a if you do it right and you go into it for the right reasons not to just tell people what to do and have fear be a fear monger you go into it to actually help people and that's what the those officers are, are often leave law enforcement and go into other careers because the the cowboys and the people that are jumping on they they're the ones that push good officers out and it's very sad i've seen that happen a lot someone who goes into it for the right intentions and um it's in in rural law enforcement it's really sad because you go you're a hometown boy you go back and you want to do what's right but then you end up you know you know you have to arrest these people you have to do it and and then you don't get elected or the uh the your sheriff gets voted out and then the new sheriff comes in and just fires everybody that's yeah. happened before too mm-hmm. yeah some, sometimes it's needed but yeah yeah so, but you know there's some people just that don't have the mentality for it and a lot of these rural small uh, they don't even do a psyche valve yeah people. yeah i sometimes i wonder what they do at all um <laughs> they don't they just yeah. want to fill put bodies in cars yeah. I, think. I mean yep um <laughs> So let's go back to your um, your your sister's case. Is it like, it, are there any next steps, any appeals, or anything that could be done, or clemency? But I that's never going to happen in the state of Missouri. Yeah. Um. He uh, she's exhausted all of her appeals because she took a plea deal 
and got life plus 25 years. And I, against my advice, I told her, do not take a plea deal. Do not. But I don't think she would have had a fair trial to begin with. Because statistically, in that county, he was the, her victim was the youngest of eight. And so you think about how many kids have had, had many kids and how many voters that was. Okay. So there's like 21,000 people in Stoddard County. My sister didn't have a chance. to, And she got a change of venue to Dunklin County, which you don't think that any of his relatives are in Dunklin County. I wanted her up closer to St. Louis because they had mental health court in St. Louis. There's only five mental health courts in Missouri, and she should have been through a mental health court. Her, Gypsy Blanchard, Gypsy Rose Blanchard should have been through a mental health court. There should have been a mental health court, but there's not. There's not enough of them. And that's nothing. The rural communities, they can get these drug courts. They can do these pretrial services, which make people pay to get on, uh, to be out on bond and do the drug patches and stuff. If they can't pay for a mental health court, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, so there's um, there's a Netflix documentary coming out. Also, no, we're on the, well, we're going to be on the upcoming season of uh, I'm a Killer for the first episode, uh, and it's called a question, uh, a matter of loyalty. And uh, we've been told that they interviewed the the prosecutor and the sheriff and the victim's family, which I'm sure they're going to have nice things to say about me. <laughs> well, you know, I was um you know, trolling around as a, a journalist is, <laughs> is yeah. you know, prone to do. And I saw that the office of the Stoddard County prosecuting oh, attorney uh, put out that uh, he had an interesting time uh, filming with a Netflix crew. Yes. So oh, he uh, put it out as soon as they sent him the email. They He uh, contacted the Copper Bluff Media, I think KFDS, all those. He, he, uh, he contacted all of them. So I'm I'm glad it helped his election because he, he didn't get the nomination for Republican. So yeah, he lost he lost that. I hadn't I hadn't paid attention to what was going on in Stoddard County. So you're saying he lost the election, is that right? Yeah, Sawyer Smith beat him. Okay. By sixty three percent, I think. Oh wow. Um I I mean there's some family members on this Facebook, you know, um taking issue with your book um saying it's lies and things like that is you know would you like to respond to that i i stand by my book my book was heavily vetted by the publisher and uh you know my mom told me a long time ago that when they're talking about me they're leaving somebody else alone so i've been cussed out in every language you can think of being a cop i there's not there's no problem with that but some people seem to have a big problem with the truth so, you know, if they don't like my book, I'm sorry about that, but I, I'll refer them to another book. It's called The Bible, and it's John 8, 32, and the truth shall set you free. That's all I'm looking for is the truth. Yeah, and it's, you know, look, when you've lost a loved one, I understand you know, that. no matter what happens, there's just going to, I mean, I, I would say that that's true with you, too. Like, you know, mm-hmm. there's going to be emotions involved. There's going to be, I, you know, um, it, it's just going to these things hit you in different ways um and uh it's just tough you know when when you when you are i mean i can not to the extent that you have but when when you're trying to find the truth it can be a very controversial thing and it can upset some people and you know you just it just comes with the territory but um i thought i'd you know let you to respond to that and oh yeah i you know you know i i i I understand that and i have complete sympathy for them they lost somebody they'll never see again but i you know i he was my brother-in-law 
I knew him for 13 years. Why, why don't they want the truth? Because if you look at the totality of the book, you see that what has happened to Vicki, you see, and you see the law enforcement work was not to par by any means. And I just wanted them to look into, there could be someone potentially out there that got away with murder. It's walking the streets of Germany because they use, they, they had their mom take the blame for them. And um, that's all I'm asking. The rest of the stuff, you know, some people don't like to talk about incest. Some people don't like to talk about other things that are factual things. I, I've been a police officer my whole life. Facts are what I deal with. So you can't refute facts. So anyone wants to bring up anything, you know, have at it. I've just, I, I have no problem with that. And, you know, I understand there's, and I have a lot of sympathy for this family. You know, I, I get it. But don't you want your brother's really real killer or uh, even the doubt that's in there looked at? Yeah, you know, it's hard. Like, I, I, I've never been in that situation, so it's hard for me to speak to that. But I, I think I would want the right person to pay for the crime. Yeah. Now, I might not want all of my dirty laundry put out there, whatever that is. Um, I, I haven't read the book. Sorry. Um, <laughs> But um, for sure, I think I'd want the right person in. And I've dealt with this with, uh, for example, the the Lawless family. You know, they they feel horrible that um, that Josh Kieser was convicted for that crime. Right. And, uh, they, they support him now. Um, but that ripped open a lot of old wounds, but it needed to happen. It had yeah. to happen because... Josh Kieser was an innocent man. If your sister's innocent, she deserves every opportunity to to prove that, I think. Or even um, but she if she's not at the same time, if she's not willing to come forward and say it, that's that's hard. Right. Yeah, that's hard. It's But, you know, I wanted to look at the whole picture of her and why she would do that, because in the book, I addressed the physical assaults that we used to have from our mom. And uh, it was my fault we got in trouble. And my sister jumped in and took the blame for me all the time. So I wouldn't get hurt. And if you look at that, a time and time again, she's done that. These people had her in their lives for 13 years. They knew what kind of person she is. And one thing the book has done, I know a lot of people are angry because I told, you know, I didn't just tell my, my, I didn't really tell their family. I told my family secrets. And that's what a lot of people are upset about. It's my story, my interpretation of the events. And you know, and I, I didn't put anything in there. I changed names that of people that might, you know, not. But it was Vicky's story. And Vicky didn't have a voice in court. This rural county took my sister's voice away from her and told her that, oh, we're going to take this plea deal. We're going to, you know, you're, you're not going to stay uh, that long. You know, maybe 25 years, 25 years plus life is what she got. When you, you don't have a voice, somebody has to be a voice for you. You've seen this time and time again with these cases. Stupid. It, there's, there has to be a voice. Yes. Don't just keep happening. Yeah. And, and it's, it's always, you know, from my standpoint, um, my, my views of on this have kind of evolved over the years, but, um, the state, the police, the prosecution, they have, they have all sorts of official channels to get their word out. Uh, the families of these victims don't. And, and even though I talked to someone like a Barb Hall, who's a mental wreck right now, 
because right. she's dealing with the death of her son who was missing for a period of time. It's her second son that has died. She's a, she, she's a mental wreck. She, you know, I mean, understandably. Right. And even like, you might have doubts about what she's saying. Like, is what right. she's saying true? Because she's, you know, like she's emotional. going through so much emotional pressure and stress right now. But at the same time, I'm experienced enough to know if she isn't allowed to express some of this stuff, it's easy for things just to be covered up, swept right. under the rug, take the, you know, easy, lazy way out, you know, if you're law enforcement or whatever. So, you and know, you guys think, I'm, I'm the youngest of eight people and if eight people in my family, they've all grown, you know, they're, they were, there's 21 years between me and the oldest. Mm -hmm. So they had a different mother at the time. They have a different life now and they seem to forget all the abuse and stuff that happened in our childhood and, and the things that happened to uh, us. And that's great. You know, I'm glad that, that they've got, they've all become, you know, semi-successful human beings and they are contributing to society. However, Vicki didn't. Vicki didn't have that. And a lot of times in these rural small counties, nobody wants to talk about what goes on. My mom would tell us, you don't tell what goes on in this house. And I think that's the same way would they would take that out into the community. You know, you don't tell we if we don't talk about it, it just happens. Well, we think that these people who are elected are doing in our best interest, and they're they're professionals. Not always. Yeah, that's one thing I liked about having a, a mother that I had that didn't know her place in society. She always told me question everything. Yeah, and, well, uh, I wasn't always that way, but I'm the older I get, the more I question. So, <laughs> I've always been that way. So I, yeah. that's why. And then I've always like asked in my family, why does this happen to us? Why did this? And a lot of them don't want to talk about it. And um, I've been going through that, you know, it's been out for a year. My brother just passed away. Now they're all very upset about uh, one paragraph, but read the whole book. It's not about just one paragraph. It's about the whole family, the whole book, the whole dynamic. This didn't start with Vicki. It didn't start with my mom. It didn't start with my grandma. It started with my great grandma. Transgenerational trauma just bleeds through all these little rural county families it never yeah never it's just yeah it kind of gets passed on doesn't it from one generation yeah. to the next okay well uh, again the name of uh, the book is if you can't quit crying you can't come home no more a family's legacy of poverty crime and mental illness in rural america betty is there anything else you want to talk about here i think i've okay. asked the questions I, I need to ask uh maybe at some point along the way we can have you on again you know maybe to talk about some of these issues that come up in policing it's uh it's it's really nice to talk to you Okay, well, thank you. Thank you very much. And I hope your listeners uh, um, and get a chance to see the book or, or the Netflix thing and, and make their own decisions. Don't just one side or the other. I, I don't get tunnel vision like a lot of these small counties do. All right. Well, thank you so much and ha have a great evening. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. I'm your host, Bob Miller. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files. If you've made it all the way here into the episode, I'd like to say thank you. And I'm going to take a moment to ask for your financial support. This work takes time, it takes money, and it takes resources. I do this work because it's a passion, because I find it meaningful and rewarding, even if it's sometimes dark and depressing and maybe even dangerous. I do this for the victims, the families, and for those who have been wronged by our system. If you believe there is value to the work I'm doing and want me to continue, I need your help. 
If you're listening to The Lawless Files on one of the podcast streaming platforms, that probably means you're not a paid access supporter. Paid supporters can get ad-free listening, plus early bird access to certain episodes, as well as other materials associated with the Michelle Lawless case. If you'd like to see my work continue, please consider paying $36 for a year's worth of benefits with the paid access pass. That averages to just $3 a month, which is a lot less than other media and podcast subscriptions. That's less than $2 per episode. But you can contribute above and beyond a paid subscription by donating any amount on our website at www.thelawlessfiles.com. We can't do it without your support. Again, go to thelawlessfiles.com and look for the Become a Supporter button at the top of the page. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files. The Lawless Files is a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC.